Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Healthy Matters, presented by Hennepin Healthcare, a network of neighborhood clinics, specialty centers, hospital, and Minnesota's Level 1 Adult and Pediatric Trauma Center. Please remember we can only give general medical advice during the program and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your personal physician if you have health concerns. Now, here's Denny Law with your host, Dr. David Hilden, internal medicine physician with Hennepin Healthcare with more Healthy Matters. And good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to this edition of uh, Healthy Matters. Dr. David Hilden is uh, back as your host. Good morning. Good morning, Denny. You make it through a little bit of snow. Streets aren't really that bad. No, they're not morning. too bad. You know, the, they yesterday getting home from work was a little dicey. That yeah. winter seemed to come at like 3 o'clock yesterday. And but the fast. Mini Cooper made it. That's good. Everybody knows yeah. I drive a Mini Cooper, and I'm telling you, you put the snow tires on it, I'm invincible. You're like a tank. I'm a tank out there. Right. A very small little tank. Well, we, uh, we're glad you made it through, and you have a couple of special guests. An interesting topic today. It is indeed an interesting topic. We've never done this before, but it's a big deal at Hennepin, and, and I'm really excited to be doing this show today. We're going to be talking about trauma-informed care. And if you are out there, maybe you've heard the term, maybe you haven't. Maybe you're scratching your head thinking, what are we doing here? I encourage you to listen to this program and to uh, uh, encourage your friends and family to listen to the podcast after the show if, if uh, they were unable to, to hear, this, um, hear the broadcast live. Uh, it'll be up on, the, on myhealthymatters.org uh, within a day or two. Uh, listen to the podcast of the show. I have two guests to help me out with that. I have uh, Dr. Helen Kim. Uh, Dr. Kim is a psychiatrist, and she is the medical director and co-founder of the Mother Baby Program at Hennepin Healthcare. She is the committee chair for the newly developed trauma and for care program at Hennepin, and she's going to help us uh, talk about uh, uh, her work. So, Dr. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good Great morning. to have you here. Also in studio today is Sil Jones. Um, many of you might know the name Sil Jones. He is a playwright and a journalist. He's an award-winning communications executive, and he's also the narrative health and medicine director at Hennepin Healthcare. He is currently the director of our trauma-informed care program. Sil, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Dave. So I, I, rather than me try to explain at all, I have two experts here in a, a fascinating area of, of the human experience and in medical care. Sil, do you want to start us out and just, or, or either one of you actually, whoever you feel is best, just give us some background on what do we mean when we say the word trauma-informed well, I can start by telling you a little bit about narrative medicine and why we actually pay attention to people's stories. Because in healthcare, knowing people's stories and being able to understand them helps us to understand what they've gone through. And if we know those stories and we take time to learn them, then that can help us to actually be able to treat the trauma that many people walk through our doors with. So we start with the idea that people do come to us uh, – with various stories, um, some of them are about historical trauma, 
Some of them are about uh, other kinds of personal traumas that they've had and really learning to understand what those stories mean and how we can interact with them. That's what helps us to get to the real problem, the root of the problem, when we're talking about trying to treat people. So you use the word narrative medicine uh, and, and people telling their stories. Do, do we do that in healthcare typically? Well, that's a really good question. I think uh, we don't anymore. Uh, when I talk to older physicians, they, they say, well, you know, the narrative, that is the story about a patient, has really disappeared because we use the electronic medical record a lot of times. And people check boxes instead of actually writing the story of what the patient has gone through. And I don't just mean the patient's uh, report when the patient walks in, but the story about how the patient got to be who or she, who she is or who he is and what's happened to him, that used to happen a lot more. But because uh, medicine has become um, really um, so advanced, uh, we tend to skip that part of the uh, process of actually dealing with patients, and we go more directly to doing tests and other things of that nature. And all of those tests can be extremely good, but at the same time, we miss the opportunity to really find out what's What's beneath the real report of the, that the patient walks in uh, to the door with? And that's what narrative medicine is about getting at is what, what's the real truth? What's the real story? So I do attending. I'm an attending physician. In fact, that's where I'll go right after the show, back to the hospital. And I often ask medical trainees, tell me something about that patient. And more often than not, Sil, one of those interns will tell me, well, their potassium's 4.8. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I said, well, what else? Well, their magnesium's 1.7. I go, no, tell me something about that patient. And unfortunately, many times they can't. And I want to know, well, did you know that he met his wife in the USO after World War II and they met at a dance hall and blah, 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 blah. Right. So how can we? So tell me about your role then in narrative medicine at Hennepin. How are you helping us to... To, to to hear people's stories. Well, I'm really working a lot to help people understand uh, what the process is of listening to a story and then perhaps even doing some storytelling themselves. So we're talking about physicians, and many of them, when, we, when I teach them in classrooms or other places, uh, they usually approach the idea of medical um, narrative storytelling uh, with crossed arms. Uh, like not, mine are right now. Are yeah. they sitting in the back with a funny look on their face? Yeah, or? right. And, and some of them are saying things like, you know, if I wanted to do this, I would have become an English major. And what I'm, what I'm trying to get them to do, of course, is to describe what they see in a picture, like if we show a Rembrandt, and we ask them to tell us what they really see, many times it's very difficult. And I've, I've been told by people who really know at Columbia, um, where they teach narrative medicine, that a lot of these um, doctors have had the, the right side of their their brains kind of hammered. They haven't had a chance to really focus on things like art and expression of self. And so what I'm trying to do is get them to write about the things that they see, the things that they feel, to read poetry, to understand that poetry is really an important part of the human um, process and the way in which we grow up and live. And then to better understand human experience that way, before we get to the issues that may be deeply medical, let's try to understand the person. So it's really about person-centered care and understanding the background and story of the person. So does it matter with health outcomes? It does, in fact, matter quite a, quite a bit with health outcomes. I mean, it sounds patients. like a good idea. Does it result but, in better health? Yeah, it does, of course, because when patients become more engaged and more trusting of you – 
as a physician, um, they are more willing to tell you maybe what really has happened to them. And there are some things that patients come through the door not necessarily wanting to articulate to a person that they don't know, a person they may feel vulnerable to. But if you can tell them that you're interested in who they are, they're more likely to tell you what they know the real problem is, and you're more likely to get to the solution. And it also helps the physician and provider because, as you know, burnout is a big issue. A lot of people have gone into the medical business wanting to treat people but finding out that they're basically dealing with uh, equipment and with, like I said, the electronic medical record and not being able to really um, do what they want to do. But narrative medicine helps them to be able to really treat people as people. And that's, I think, I think that's valuable to both providers and patients. Amen to all that. I couldn't agree with that any more strongly. Um, Helen, tell me about what you're doing with your program. Right. Now, you started the mother-baby program in it with a specific group of people. Could you talk a little bit more about your journey to this point? Sure. So I'm a, 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 a reproductive psychiatrist, which is a field of psychiatry focused on the care of uh, women during reproductive transitions. And I focus specifically on the transition during pregnancy and postpartum, the transition to motherhood and parenting. And I would say that maybe the bridge from narrative medicine to trauma-informed care, uh, one bridge is that um, something that we've noticed in our own experience working with hundreds of mothers is that many of them come with stories of their own struggles, their own childhood experiences that have led and are reactivated in the context of pregnancy. So it's often, um, it might be called postpartum depression, but that's such a, I'd say, such a inadequate uh, description of really what's going on. For some, it's really um, kind of prolonged uh, grieving over many missed opportunities before. It's a um, revisiting of early life experiences and um, remembrances of how one oneself was parented um, that gets activated in the context of becoming a parent. So it's a very rich time. And I think in a medical model, we simplify the experience by giving it a diagnostic label like postpartum depression. It sounds like, okay, you're having a rough go of it, you know, suck it up, you're, you're sad and tired, and like it's all based on this event that happened right now. Right, here's your diagnosis. It does sound very here's inadequate. It sounds awful, actually. Here's the pill that will fix that. It sounds a little judgmental, too. It, I, I would say so, and I think people unintentionally, doctors can make them feel very broken in our current model where we emphasize diagno, uh, diagnosis and, and disease versus curiosity about uh, their own story, their life experiences that led to this moment. And so part of the um, privilege we have in our mother-baby program is that we have mothers that come. It's a day program, so they come in the day. They're not hospitalized with us, um, but they're w- with us for many hours in a day over many weeks. So we get to really understand people and know them over time and um, and help them retell their own story. And so our, our shift in trauma-informed care um, and also in the mother-baby program, which is a trauma-informed program, is shifting from the focus on what's wrong with you to real empathy and curiosity about what happened to you. So your program, you have um, new, new moms and their, their babies in? They come in every day? Explain a typical week for one of the people, the participants in your program. Sure. So we see uh, mainly postpartum but also pregnant moms who come who are struggling with depression or anxiety or sleep or um, deep senses of uh, inadequacy in their parenting or func- in other areas of functioning. And um, they're distressed enough or impaired enough that they come to us and – 
uh, some in one one of our programs they come for about four weeks actually so it's about 20 hours a week we have another program that's um, six hours a week and we have some outpatient programs but maybe just to shift from the details of our program to more generally around uh, kind of the foundational ideas of our program which relate to trauma-informed care there there's two decades of research we're going to talk about that. That's going to be what we're going to do. With the, okay. We're going to take a quick break. I'm giving the hook. Um, we're going to do a quick break, and then we're going to do that. We're going to talk about what do we mean, how does trauma um, inform the care we provide, and how does it affect people's lives, um, both historical trauma and ongoing everyday lived um, experience of people. Uh, we'll do that after the break. Sure, absolutely. Back with more Healthy Matters, here's again as your host, Dr. David Hill. Thanks, Denny. We're talking with Dr. Helen Kim and uh, Syl Jones um, from the uh, – I'm from Hennepin Healthcare. We're talking about narrative medicine, storytelling in medicine, and about trauma-informed care. And I want to delve a little bit into that before I cut you off, Dr. Kim. Sure. Um, talk about the foundations of how you started your program. In general terms, I'd like to hear about uh, trauma-informed care and say a little bit more about that, if you could, please. Sure. So when we uh, launched our mother-baby program in 2013, we were very focused, of course, on the struggles of new mothers and pregnant moms and their struggles in their relationships with their own babies. And what we found after seeing um, dozens and then hundreds of mothers is that uh, the depression that might have led to their coming to us, actually, there was there was a deeper, deeper um, layer to what what really the pain was about. And what we found was that many came with their own personal experiences of trauma. And I I could just define trauma because I think it's a it's a, a word that can be overused and maybe misunderstood. It's got a lot of interpretations. I broke my leg. That was a trauma to my right. leg. Right. You know, so but I, I think there's more to it than that. Exactly. So I think trauma in some contexts, particularly in a medical context, can feel like a physical trauma, like a car accident or a um, some kind of injury. And here um, we're we're really thinking of trauma more broadly to include um, events or a series of events that are emotionally overwhelming that can involve threats to safety or um, real or perceived threats to life without enough protection or support. Mm. So it, it includes things like childhood abuse, neglect, um, the persistent trauma of uh, facing dangers, living in an unsafe neighborhood, experiencing discrimination. So those are um, experiences also of trauma. But in, in our context, we learned that a lot of the mothers that we were seeing actually experienced childhood trauma. And that led us to dive deeper into a very important study. It's actually probably the most important medical study that too many healthcare providers have never heard of. And that's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study or the ACEs study. Um, So that was done in the late 1990s. And it was done in California with 17,000 predominantly privately insured white college-educated people. And what they did, the researchers did, was they um, gave this group of Um, more privileged people, uh, a survey, and they asked 10 questions around childhood abuse, childhood um, neglect, and exposure to household, what they called stress. So things like um, living in a household where you witnessed domestic abuse, where you had a parent incarcerated, where you grew up with a parent with mental illness or substance use. And what they found uh, from this ACEs study was that, to to everyone's surprise, um, but not to psychiatrists' surprise, to everyone's surprise, uh, childhood abuse is incredibly common. So ACEs were incredibly common, even in this very privileged population. For instance, uh, one out of three of these adults acknowledged childhood physical abuse. One it's incredibly out of, high. In, incredibly mm-hmm. high. For sexual abuse, meaning prior to the age of 18, where you sexually abused as a child, this group of adults 
in a survey, one out of uh, four women acknowledged sexual abuse and one out of six men acknowledged sexual abuse. So these are were astronomically higher than what anyone ever would have predicted. So not only were ACEs common or found to be common and, and high, they also tended to cluster, that, uh, that many people had not just one or two ACEs, they had many more. So and if you had one of these types of experiences, you maybe had more than... That's right, that the, okay. the ACEs clustered, that if you grew up with a parent where you, you witnessed domestic abuse, you also were more likely to have experienced sexual abuse or physical abuse or had a parent um, who suffered from mental illness or substance use. So they tended to cluster, and that the higher your ACE score, the higher your risk for not only adult depression and substance use and other things, which wasn't that surprising, that the more bad things that happened to you as a child, the more you might struggle as an adult. The thing that really um, surprised people was that the higher your ACE score, so the higher your your exposure to childhood adversity, the higher your risk of what we call quote-unquote medical illnesses like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, other things. So it wasn't just – not just, but it wasn't mental, mental illness or what we think of as mental illness that um, – was connected with at childhood adversity. It was also, again, these diabetes and other things that we thought of as more biologically based. Why might that be? Well, I mean, why might your physical health be dependent on, you know, childhood trauma? Right. I, I can launch into that, but if you want to, well, chime into some it. of it is about coping mechanisms that people use and um, overuse. Uh, for example, we know that people who have uh, high ACEs also generally tend to do risky behaviors. Mm. They're more likely to be smokers. Uh, they're more likely to be involved in risky sexual behavior and doing other things that can, of course, put them in a, a position where they have physical uh, ailments that need to be treated. So. Uh, go ahead. Well, I would say in addition, mm-hmm. because that's all mm-hmm. that has definitely been shown that the higher your ACE is, the higher your risk for smoking and other health harming behaviors. And um, again, importantly, even if you control for those, so even if you didn't smoke and if you didn't engage in risky sexual behaviors, your risk for diabetes and heart disease, other things, was still elevated. And so that really surprised people too of what is it about early adversity that predisposes people to adult disease? And, and, after the ACEs study and, and after it was replicated in many, many other studies, um, it became more apparent um, that there was something else going on. And one description of it is called um, epigenetics, which is that you're, it's not only that you're born with genes, it's that genes are turned off, off and on from your experiences. And so it's, it's these experiences that shape your genetic expression and also your biology. The other important um, research uh, that was shown was that our bodies have a natural defense against threat. So if I'm a child and I grew up with a, a scary or violent parent, my stress response, my survival response would go on. And so uh, ideally what happens is, is our stress response, our defense against threat goes on when we need it and often we don't. But if a child growing up with a scary, intermittently scary parent, that stress response system is on all the time. And so that stress is called toxic stress, where the stress body stress response, which again is on, it's like the on switch goes on and it never goes off, stays on, and that drives inflammation. And inflammation is really thought of as the driver of things like heart disease and diabetes, and even depression is really thought of as a pro-inflammation illness. 
So I want to talk about that a lot more in the second half of the show, and then we're going to open up the phone lines in the second half of the show to our listeners as well. We're talking about trauma-informed care. Specifically, we're going to, have, we're going to go to our break, but I'm going, to, I'm going to ask our guests to think, to think about how they're going to respond. to. The, I'm going to ask them, what do we do about it now? How do we ask? How do we get at this now? How, do, how does it affect the way we deliver health care? How does it affect the way we interact with our patients? Now, it's a fascinating topic. We're talking with Syl Jones and Dr. Helen Kim from Hennepin Healthcare about trauma-informed care. I'm going to talk more in the second half of the show about some of the cool programs we're doing, and we're going to talk a little bit about a way you can get involved with the Red Leaf Center for Family Healing at Hennepin Healthcare. Um, and uh, so stay tuned for that. But let's mention that, and again, uh, as Dr. Hilden said, we'll be opening up the, not only the phone lines, but the text line as well. Uh, let me give you the phone line as we head to the break, 651 651- Nine eight nine nine two two six. Text is eight one eight zero seven. I do want to um, a couple bit of housekeeping things. People have asked me, so you haven't put anything up on the myhealthymatters.org for a while. What's up? You still around? I'm here. Um, uh, it's been busy. I've been seeing some patients, so I do want to remind listeners: if you want to hear any podcasts of previous shows, if you want to hear my ramblings about everything from diabetes to whether or not you should take an aspirin to protect your heart all the way to hearing about my experiences in a Finnish sauna in the streets of Helsinki when I was there with the Minnesota Orchestra. You can, you can read all about that. Um, maybe you don't want to hear about my experiences in a Finnish sauna, but if you do, it's at myhealthymatters.org, and um, you could go there anytime. You can go there right now, and you can certainly go there um, in later today or tomorrow to hear a podcast of previous shows, including this one. Very good. We'll uh, take this break. We have another half hour of the show to go, so if you uh, want to join in, call us or text us. And good morning. Welcome to this portion of Healthy Matters, and this is where you can uh, get involved in the show, if you like, by phone or by text, 651-989-9226. Text is 81807. Here again is your host, Dr. David Hilden. And for those maybe joining us a little late, you brought a couple of special folks with you. I did. Thank you, uh, Denny. Uh, welcome, people, uh, for to the show. We're talking about uh, narrative medicine and trauma-informed care and how your life experiences um, affect your health care. We're doing that with two experts. Syl Jones is the director of trauma-informed care at Hennepin Healthcare. He is a noted um, Twin Cities playwright and journalist and um, is... Uh, um, helping us uh, at Hennepin by directing our trauma-informed care program and through narrative medicine. We also have Dr. Helen Kim. She has, she has what I didn't hear earlier. She's a psych- I know her as a psychiatrist and a fantastic psychiatrist, but she said she's a reproductive psychiatrist. I hadn't heard that term before. She deals with um, uh, uh, mental health issues and, and uh, obviously and is the director and co-founder of our mother-baby program. Um, uh, a couple of other little uh, housekeeping bits. I want to talk about the Red Leaf Center for Family Healing, um, and I'm going to ask our guests to talk about that a little bit in the show. But if but but the Red Leaf Center for Family Healing at Hennepin Healthcare is um, is a, a, a program that we are really excited about, and uh, clinical services are going to be provided through the mother baby program, and it's going to foster mental health, supportive relationships, and parent capacity for families expecting a baby or parenting of children um, who are uh, uh, young children. The center is going to include integrative health services, on-site child care, training, a trauma-informed 
healthcare resources. This is the Redleaf Center for Family Healing at Hennepin Healthcare. If you, I'm going to ask Dr. Kim and Syl to talk more about that, but I wanted to um, give you a heads up about that so you can get a pencil and write down um, the phone numbers for it. Uh, so go get a pencil to hear more about the Redleaf Center. Okay, now back to trauma-informed care, narrative medicine. Um, we were talking earlier, Syl and Helen, about your childhood traumas, the ACEs study, uh, um, how tr- how childhood uh, traumas can um, lead to to um, healthcare outcomes, adverse healthcare outcomes later. What can we do about that? When you, how do we as healthcare professionals get at the trauma in people's lives to affect their health now? Who wants to tackle that? Well, we can start again with the stories and the aspects of, of how we get to know what uh, the traumas are that people are facing. They have to be willing to talk to us. Yeah, I don't have any. You don't have any, right? You know, right. Do you ever get that? You know, someone, you know, because yeah. people probably don't come in, right? Or maybe around the time of having a baby and say, "Yeah, boy, I had a crappy childhood, and now I'm, I'm, you know, they they probably don't just offer that right off the bat." Well, not only that, but we don't ask them. Yeah, we I mean, don't that, ask. That's another thing. We don't do any screening for ACEs, for example, adverse childhood experiences. We need to do that a little bit. I mean. That can be problematic. We don't want to hit people in the face with uh, asking them about trauma when they first come to the door. What we want to do is integrate the screening process with the other kinds of things that we do to help patients feel more comfortable so that they can talk about their perhaps their traumatic issues. And so what we do about it is our people who actually work with patients need to be trained to understand what historical trauma, for example, is and then to be doing what we call Trauma 101 or Trauma-Informed Care 101, where they actually learn more about how to actually deal with the trauma that uh, people come through the door with, how to recognize that, how not to re-traumatize people. So the first part of what we're doing right now is actually training our own personnel so that they can do this. And this is not something that's been done in many different larger hospitals across the country. Is it done anywhere? Well, there are there are some clinics that are doing it. I yes. would say on a smaller scale, but I I think we're unique to say as a healthcare system that we will be a trauma informed healthcare system, and and I think Hennepin Healthcare is uniquely positioned to do that because of our um, reputation as a trauma hospital that we're really broadening the public and in our own understanding of what trauma means that it's not again just the car car accident and physical wounds, it's the emotional wounds, um, and it's recognizing that just to some degree we're all a little wounded. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't that the doctor in the office and the patient in the office share that in common that very shared human experience of of woundedness um, and that that uh, is a very important part of healing so that the shift in trauma informed care again is is shifting from what's wrong with you what's broken and how do I fix it to tell me about what happened to you how can I understand what you've experienced and how that now informs your health I want to work at that healthcare system absolutely <laughs> seriously I want to and to I, I that's a joke I do yeah. work at that healthcare system <laughs> I think so yeah. uh, um, I think I still have a job but oh no uh, no I mean that seriously I think that that is a healthcare system you want you want one that is looking at um, person centered care and looking at your life in its entirety and I would say the person that says I don't have stories that maybe responds defensively that that might also happen because because I think we've trained patients of what to expect in a, in a clinical encounter with yeah. a doctor, yeah. that yeah. you're supposed to come in and just focus on a very sm- specific symptom, not expect to be really listened to or asked much, and then to leave with a prescription. And I think, I think patients have been kind of primed to come to us with that expectation. So part of the trauma-informed care shift is really a culture shift, right. um, shifting 
I think our um, the personnel and the staff, but it's also shifting ourselves uh, to really uh, deepen our own understanding of what our role is as healers rather than treaters. I want to ask one of you to respond to this from a listener through our text line. Uh, I think it's it's relevant. It says, what if the trauma is emotional and continues throughout your life and you're unaware of it until you're much older? Oh. Can it be healed? That's from a, a listener. I, I think that's a beautiful question, right. and thank you for asking mm-hmm. that. I think that's many people's question. I, there's a phrase that I really think is really resonates with a lot of the people that I see. So there's a famous researcher, Sean Ginwright, in California, and he, he distinguishes PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, from PTSE, which is persistent traumatic stress environment. I've never heard those four letters. Right. Mm-hmm. So PTSD, post-traumatic that, that stress. I, know. Mm-hmm. I think we think of, of, of the soldier coming back from war or someone after a car accident where they've experienced something that everyone would recognize as traumatic. And now we're having nightmares and flashbacks and, and re-experiencing of that traumatic event that, that happened in the past. Some people live in a persistent toxic stress environment. So the, so the trauma didn't really stop. It, it lives. So you live with an abusive partner or you live with an, abu- an uh, unsafe neighborhood or you face the indignities and the, and that happen when you when you're, uh, don't have enough money or where, when you're a person of color and are confronted with discrimination or everyday racism. So those are persistent toxic stress experiences that also activate the inflammation, the, the body's defenses, and lead to that kind of chronic inflammatory state that drives illness. Yeah, and so, trauma needs to be dealt with. Absolutely. And that's the issue is so the the person who was texting about that is asking the question of what happens to buried trauma. And I, I would say, and I'm not an expert, Dr. Kim is the physician here, but what happens to buried trauma is it often um, reemerges. And it reemerges in ways that can cause pain in a person and also in a person's family. And so we talk about two-generation or transgeneration trauma or trauma spread from a parent to a child and then to a grandchild and all of those things. And what we're trying to do is interrupt that sequence so that people are not in pain throughout many generations. And to answer specifically, thank you, Sil, the caller's uh, question, absolutely you can heal. Absolutely it's not too That's an important Whether second half of that, can it be healed? That's right. Whether you're 5 or you're 95, it's never too late to heal what's, what's the woundedness. And I, I think that's a very important um, starting place. And, and part of the healing, I think, for most people is not going to be in pill form. It's really going to be in a relationship. So we say in Mother Baby that we heal in relationship, and that's a, a very important part of um, one is to, uh, you know, connection and love and uh, being listened to is a, is a very, very um, healing experience. It also downregulates stress response. So there's a biology uh, to why that actually helps with inflammation and physical illnesses. It, there's actually uh, physiologic effects to being listened to, to being seen. Okay, I'm going to give a little different perspective from another listener. This is from the text line. How is it healthy to dig up old wounds? <laughs> that's a really good question. A, and they put old question. wounds in, in capitals. That's right. So I think it, that's a – thank you, Texter. That's a legitimate question. Absolutely. Who wants to tackle it? Do you want to go, Siller? Well, it's, uh, it can be healthy if you do it the right way. Of course, it's not, a, it's not healthy to necessarily dig up things that uh, are old wounds that um, have been also taken care of. If the wounds have been healed, that's, that's great. But then I think you do have to look at 
whether or not people need to to heal based on their family relationships, things that have happened to them that continue to happen to them in patterns over the years, and you start to ask the question of why. Why are these things occurring? It may be because of the the deeper traumas that exist that haven't been dealt with, that weren't dealt with in the beginning if you were a child, that have not been dealt with uh, through other relationships that you may have had that maybe, maybe didn't didn't turn out so well. Maybe you have family problems, and those problems have continued over the years. Sometimes that can be about things that you've experienced that you have not had help in dealing with. So I would say that's one of the important aspects of this. We're going to come back after the break. We're going to take a real quick break here. Hold that thought. All right. Very good. Uh, 651-989-9226. Text line is 81807. And welcome back to this portion of Healthy Matters. Here again is Dr. David Hilton. We're talking about trauma-informed care with Syl Jones and uh, Dr. Helen Kim from Hennepin Healthcare. Uh, Denny, I think we have time to go to the phones, yes, don't we? we do. Kathleen is first up here calling from Brooklyn Center. Kathleen, thank you. What is your question, please? Good morning. My question is a little bit more recent. In October, I went in to have a, by ambulance to have a kidney stone removed. And as a result of moving the stone... I had sepsis all backed up behind it, and I got septic shock. And I was in um, life support with the tube down my throat and everything for a week. Now, what I'm wondering is what kind of experiences that I'm having now uh, or what other things can I be expecting from being a week on life support? Kathleen, thank you for that call. Um, Dr. Kim? Yes, Kathleen, I hope that you're feeling better. I'm so sorry to hear of that. I, I would say that I think what you're describing is such an important, it brings up the, the, the whole topic of medical trauma, that, that healthcare providers in, with very, very good intentions, un, unfortunately and unintentionally, can sometimes be harmful in our in our efforts to help you. So I think it's very common after a traumatic event like you had that you're, that part of what you'll experience in your recovery is not only the the recovery physically from the medical condition, but also it's actually recovery from the, the medical intervention. And so people, after um, a traumatic medical event, can often have things like nightmares and flashbacks and re-experiencing symptoms. And um, I think it's important just to name that some of that, again, is from um, you're, you're, the, the reason why you, you, you asked for medical intervention, but some of it actually can, again, be the medical intervention itself. Caused right. part of it. Right. That's right. And that's really – actually, that's pretty common, uh, medically induced trauma that occurs. And one thing that Kathleen can do, obviously, is to reach out to psychologists and psychiatrists perhaps to talk about those issues, not just with the doctor that she was treating with, but there are other physicians that can help her – sort of unpack what those trauma experiences have meant to her. And that's the really important thing to do, to be able to talk about it. Yeah, because I don't know if the, you know, I, I, the doctor that treated her is probably a fantastic physician. I'm sure he or she is. Right. But, but maybe isn't the one you know, who got much training in that and who is you – know, <laughs> it might be the one who put the tube down your throat and kept you alive for those few hours, but may, you know, maybe yep. isn't the best one that's right. to help her. That's yeah. right. They're... So um, we have a few minutes left. I would like um, – and I have a few more things to talk about, but what I would like um, one of you to talk about is the Red Leaf um, Center. Sure. Um, what, I alluded to it earlier. What is 
the Red Leaf Center for Family Healing. So the Red Leaf Center actually is is a, a something we're very very excited about, and it's an expansion of our work in the mother baby program, where we have focused on the mother child dyad, the two generation parent and child, and really expanded the. We want to expand the focus on the whole family. So we know that postpartum things like postpartum depression or or other medical events are family events that when when one member of your family is experiencing a health crisis the whole ex, the whole family goes through that crisis as well and something that's unique about the prenatal postpartum time is that there are children involved that are in this incredibly sensitive developmental window where they need adult caregivers so we're really focused on that early family life and incorporating things like um, mind body skills meditation other things that are sort of separate from um, medications and diagnosis, really, again, getting to the whole family system's experience of this event and how do we support the whole family. So this is about building parent and family capacity. It's through um, therapy. It's through couple therapy, parent-child therapy, so some traditional mental health interventions like therapy and medication, but it's really beyond that, looking at things like child care support, nutrition support. We'll have a, test, a teaching kitchen in our setting, too, so to, to really get to, you know, food is medicine. That's our first medicine is really the healthy food that we put in our bodies. And so how do people now in, in a busy family, busy, busy lifestyle um, come together to prepare meals, share meals, and really getting back to the healing parts of um, cooking and nutrition and then the other part of the the, the family, the Redley Family um, Healing Center, will, will be to share what we learn about trauma informed care, about trauma healing um, therapies, and sharing them with the community who might be in organizations that are are less resourced. So, to do this work, we have a very generous donor, the Redley Family. Um, we will need more support, and so we're really excited to be on the brink of announcing this um, this new transformative center, center that's really going to transform how we think of healthcare in a hospital. Yeah, if, if any of you listening or get frustrated about the over-medicalization of our healthcare systems and the forms and the paperwork and the blood tests and all of the medical stuff and wonder why doesn't the healthcare system treat, you know, uh, um, in a fashion that Dr. Kim just described, that is, in my opinion, how we ought to be proceeding in our healthcare system. The Red Leaf Center for Family Healing is super exciting. Um, I've been hearing about its development, and we and we are now able to announce that the Red Leaf Family has been supportive of that. If you listeners would like to learn more about it, I encourage you to go to hennepinhealthcare.org slash foundation. HennepinHealthcare.org slash foundation. You can learn much more about how you can help and support it. I'm going to read a text message that came, another one that just came through. And it it says, um, I have an adult son suffering what has been diagnosed as functional neurologic disorder. Um, And he's got seizures. It's all based on trauma um, and physical and emotional trauma. It's extremely difficult to go through the medical system for a diagnosis. I can't thank you enough for this program. It has opened my eyes, but this is an area I'd like to learn more about. So th- there are so many people with both medical and uh, mental health and substance issues and trauma in their life who could um, who-, who could benefit, I think, from a different approach to health care, from and, what you've just described. And Dr. Kim has been talking a lot about mother-baby, but this is this goes beyond that. The Red Leaf Center is... You know, what we say is we're going to transform the health of our community by providing exceptional care without exception, and that means everybody. That means everybody. I want to thank um, uh, Syl Jones, um, journalist, playwright of the Trauma-Informed Care Program at Hennepin Healthcare, and Dr. Helen Kim. She is a psychiatrist, the co-founder of the Mother-Baby Program. Both of them are going to be instrumental in, in advancing trauma-informed care 
narrative medicine in person and um, person-centered care at Hennepin Healthcare. Thank you, Syl, for being here. Thank you very much. Helen, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. As always, I wish we had a couple, three more hours to go, but we don't. Thank you, listeners, what for your What a great calls. show. Yeah, it's a really great fascinating. Tremendous um, information. Thanks, Denny. Next week, we're going to talk about open lines. Um, that means, I can talk about open lines. You're going to call me and you're going to stump the chump. It'll be the listener-driven show on open lines. We hope you join us again uh, uh, next week. We'll open up the lines, both text and phone calls, as uh, usual. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.